The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustan Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Form Book Club. We continue to discuss Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger's then Benedict Pope, Spirit of Liturgy. Uh, and we're on chapter three of part two. Part one was on the essence of liturgy. We discussed that. And in part two, uh, he talks about time and space in liturgy. Chapter one, time. Chapter two, sacred places. And now comes what I think is the central chapter of this whole book, and I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to delight, dilate on it at great length. The altar and the direction of liturgical prayer. This, I think, is the definitive research and reporting on the direction of prayer and the altar. So I'm going to, especially we had a nice lunch here. Uh, my Cabernet was superb. I thought I just have it. My sourdough bread was not perfect, but it was plenty good enough for the wine. Uh, so you're going to have to interject, interrupt, intervene at any time uh, when you feel so called. So chapter 3, page 74 in my book, 86 or 88 in, I think, other books. You always look at the beginning of the show. He's a great professor. He explains what he's going to do. The reshaping so far described of the Jewish synagogue for the purpose of Christian worship. So that's an origin of Christian Catholic worship. Clearly shows, as we've already said, how even in the architecture, there's both continuity and newness in the relationship of the Old Testament to the New. This is a very important uh, concept, both for theology and for liturgy, that Jesus is the fulfillment and the surpassing of the prophecies and the liturgical expression of the Jewish people. And so we expect to find it organically united to what went before, and at the same time, we expect to find something which is new. As a consequence, expression in space had to be given to the properly Christian act of worship, the celebration of the Eucharist, together with the ministry of the Word, which is ordered to that celebration. So two parts of the Mass, the Word, the Eucharist. The first is ordered to the second. Eight lines up from the bottom there. We saw that the architectural canon for the liturgy of the Word and sacrament is not a rigid one. Though with every new development and reordering, the question has to be posed, here we are again, what is in harmony with the essence of the liturgy and what attraction? So that's what he's going to do. He's going to look about the altar and ask himself, uh, it's not rigid, there's flexibility, there can be change, but what corresponds most perfectly to the essence of the liturgy and what attracts? Next page. Can it foretell us what he's going to do in this chapter? Despite all the variations in practice that had taken place far into the second millennium, 
One thing has remained clear for the whole of Christendom. That means East and West, right? Praying toward the East is a tradition that goes back to the beginning. Moreover, it is a fundamental expression of the Christian synthesis of cosmos and history, of being rooted in the once-for-all events of salvation history, cross and resurrection especially, while going out to meet the Lord who is to come again. New paragraph, just that first sentence. Modern man has little understanding of this, quote, orientation, close quotes. So there we set the scene for what he's going to do. Next page, 76 or 90, six lines down or so, the cosmic symbol of the rising sun expresses the universality of God above all particular places and maintains the concreteness of divine revelation. So it's, it's cosmic, but it's also concrete. It's a specific direction towards a specific star. Ah, now comes the question, next paragraph. But what about the altar? Father, can I interject? Yes. Yeah, because I, I highlighted the very following sentence to one you just read, because it just struck me as, as something new for me. Our praying is thus inserted into the procession of the nations to God. I just had this vision of, you know, we're all facing the same way, but we're actually moving forward. Uh, so whether we're in the second century or the 12th century or the 21st century, that that orientation during during the, the, the mass is actually moving the people of God in the direction of the resurrected and Lord and the second coming. So there's this sort of dynamism in the movement, which I hadn't really thought about before. Yes. Uh, next sentence there. Well, I just read that. Okay, what direction? On the next page, just above the middle, oh, well, at the very bottom phrase on page 76 slash 90, sacrifice is humanity becoming love with Christ. Yeah, now, beautiful. what a beautiful poetic expression that is. Yeah, beautiful. And it sums up what he said previously about egressus and regressus, you know, exodus and readytus, uh, and the mass being the turning point we bring with Christ crucified and risen, the whole of creation and ourselves back to God. Next page, just above the middle, the liturgical renewal in our own century, he's talking about the 20th century now, took up this alleged model, the alleged model of St. Peter's, because St. Peter's, if you've been there, you know it actually faces west. And there's that beautiful alabaster uh, window of the Holy Spirit that's in the back of the apse in which, in which the setting sun illuminates with its beautiful colors. So. People say, oh, well, look, uh, the church doesn't face east, it faced west. Well, he's going to explain what the problem was. Uh, took up this alleged model and developed from it a new idea for the form of liturgy. The Eucharist, so it was said, had to be celebrated versus populum toward the people. Uh, the whole rest of that paragraph is good, but let's go to the next page, 78-92. This is, of course, he says, a misunderstanding of the significance of the Roman Basilica and a positioning of its altar and the representation of the Last Supper is also, to say the least, inaccurate. So this idea that we have to conform the Mass to what we think the Last Supper was is, he'll explain later in this chapter, inaccurate. Next page, five, four lines down. This new, the Christian, new and all-encompassing form of worship could not be derived simply from the meal but it had to be defined through the interconnection of the temple and the synagogue 
word and sacrament cost us in history, a repeated refrain. But we'll see in this chapter, he explains, yes, the Eucharist is a meal, but it's a sacred meal. It's a unique type of meal. And we can't make the form of the Eucharistic sacrifice be imitative of the form of a meal, even though Jewish meal, as we'll see later, had a little different form than we would expect a normal supper to have. Uh, a few lines down there, he says, once again, let me quote Bouillet. Louis Bouillet, Father Louis Bouillet was a French oratorian, former Lutheran, who became a Catholic and then a priest, uh, extraordinary person. He came into San Francisco every year for a while to teach our students. And he was just a treasure of wisdom and knowledge of the church and especially of liturgy, uh, and also a fairly mordant sense of humor about liturgists especially. But here's what Boyer says, never and nowhere before that, that is before the 16th century, which is Luther and the Reformation, have we any indication that any importance or even attention was given to whether the priest celebrated with the people before him or behind him. As Professor Cyril Vogel has recently demonstrated, so that's another liturgist of the 20th century, very important person. The only thing ever insisted upon or even mentioned was that he should say the Eucharistic prayer as all the other prayers facing east. So whether he faced the people or not, that was insignificant. The point was when he prayed, he faced east. Even when the orientation of the church enabled the celebrant to pray turned toward the people when at the altar, we must not forget that it was not the priest alone who then turned east. It was the whole congregation together with him. So you got St. Peter's Basilica, okay? It's facing west. So there's an altar, and the priest is facing west at the altar, but he faces east for the, uh, for the, uh, it's for the word of the God and everything. But then for the, for the Eucharistic sacrifice, he's on the west side of the altar facing the people who are in the east side of the nave, but they've got their backs turned toward him because they're facing east also. So this idea that St. Peter's Basilica is the basis for mass versus problem is simply absurd. And Rasker is pointing that out here. Father, a couple of things, if I may. I mean, um, it, please, please interrupt. I love interruptions. <laughs> well, I, on page 91, you know, he, did, he does say in same parenthesis here about versus populum. I think it's important people know this. The council, the Second Vatican Council, says nothing about turning towards the people. So this isn't something which is the teaching of the Second Vatican Council. This is an innovation in the uh, so-called alleged spirit of, which is not the same thing as we've said repeatedly. And then what you said briefly, that this first quote by Louis, is it Bouillet? Is that how you pronounce his name? Bouillet, Bouillet yes. Yeah. Um, it's just this, you know, again, this idea of everybody in the meal, Last Supper, and in ancient meals all be on the same side of the table, and the other side is where the servers were. So um, that, that, that what, there's not even a versus populum in, in, in the idea of the meal. Um, so it, it's just wrong-headed on, on, on all counts. We'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. 
Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to the Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. So, Father, explain to me, if you would please, when you say that when the celebration of the Mass in St. Peter's Basilica gets to the Eucharistic prayer, the priest is facing east, and so was the practice originally that the people turned East also? Did they yes, turn that's around? A, that, that's the expression, conversi ad dominum. Turn. Yeah, what happened would be, at the first part of the Mass, of course, the priest or the pope or the bishop is facing the people and doing the readings, giving the homily. And the people are facing the priest, and then they're having the response, whatever that might be, the gradual, the response of some, I'm not sure what they had then, but even at that point, when the, when the gifts are brought up, the priest or the pope receives the gifts, the deacon sings conversia dominum time to turn to the lord and all the people turned and faced the entrance of saint peter's and the pope or the bishop was on the west side of the altar facing with them so, you know it's an interesting i never thought about it till i read wow. it here but interesting uh image you know he became well, the caboose <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah well and this is uh years ago someone sent us a book it was actually a Protestant publication, a series of history books, and they're pretty well done. But there was one on the Crusades, and, uh, you know, when the Crusaders, the Franks, as they were called in, in the Holy Land there, had conquered temporarily, uh, they lived for long periods of time in kind of collaboration with Muslims, because they're people, they're, you know, they're, they're selling their grain or whatever, and the Crusaders would allow Muslims to come into the Catholic cathedrals or churches to pray. 
Well, this th there's an actual account, and it, it was actually quoted there, uh, of this Frankish, the, the uh, kind of a rough-hewn crusader comes into the chapel, and there's a Muslim there praying, but he's facing Mecca, you know, which would be to the south. And the crusader said, wait a minute, you can't pray that way. I got to pray this way. I got to face Mecca. No, you can't, not our chapel. You got to pray facing east. And so the crusader picked him up and turned him east. You know, it was a friendly struggle that took place. But the, <laughs> but to, to me, that really brought home the idea that up until the Middle Ages beyond, it was just not conceivable to think of official prayer being made anywhere other than towards the rising sun. Bottom of page 79. Go ahead, Joseph, you had something else? No, no, no that, that's it. Bottom of page 79, uh, last line. In reality, what happened after the council was that an unprecedented clericalization came on the scene. Now the priest, the presider, as they now prefer to call him, becomes the real point of reference for the whole liturgy. Everything depends upon him. We have to see him, to respond to him, to be involved in what he is doing. His creativity sustains the whole thing. So, and I want to comment on this word presider. Why is that become a very common term to refer to the celebrant of the Mass? Because it's more abstract than celebrant. Uh, and it's of the liturgy, not of the Mass. Presider at the liturgy. Baptism is a liturgy also. And even an atheist can baptize as long as he intends what the church intends. And a child can baptize someone else, and a woman can, and a Muslim can. And so, theoretically, if you talk about sacraments of baptism, a baptism is a sacrament, uh, a woman can preside, can be the presider at the baptismal liturgy. Because now we've made liturgy more abstract, it includes all the sacraments, and presider more abstract, it includes both the minister of baptism and of the Eucharist. And so they want to call the priest the presider precisely to confuse things, make it ambiguous, so that they don't recognize that only someone who is ordained a vere man, male, can be the consecrator, presider, proclaimer of the word at an official Eucharist. So again, it's part of the, as, as my former, well, he's, he's a friend all his life, but he died years ago, on senior Bill Smith. Uh, was fond of saying, he said, uh, social engineering is always preceded by linguistic engineering. You know, oh, yeah. we're yeah. terminating the pregnancy. Terminating the pregnancy. Really? How about killing a baby? Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. The, so, yeah, the other thing there, Father's wise, I, I think there's an irony here because uh, you know that, that uh, Ratzinger points out that this. Uh, abuse of the liturgy is is actually uh clericalism you know that 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 because yes. you know, you know, it's always sort of yeah, the, the the claim is that sort of uh the church was clericalist and now we're not but the actual fact the priest becomes the star of the show everyone's pointing to the priest you get the crucifix out of the way so the priest can be seen uh you know it, it, it to me this is clericalism taken to an extreme uh, and uh, you know, and and again, the irony, the double think is that those who are more traditional are are accused of being clericalists, but it's actually the opposite. And you know, I I love the symbolism as I'm vesting as a priest that uh, after the amos, I, I put on the alb, which is white garment, reminds of baptism. I'm, I'm entering into my baptismal 
experience of Christ. Then comes a cincture, a strengthening, a prayer for chastity, which is confirmation, strengthening a sacrament. Then comes the uh, stole, which is elevation to the sacrament of holy orders, the ministry. And finally, the chasuble, which is Christ the high priest. So I'm disappearing, you know. And when I, when I turn to face the Lord, the people can't see my face. They see my back, and they see on the back of the of the vestments usually a, a, a you know picture of Christ or Christ. We missed that last session, I think. So that I'm disappearing. I'm growing less. Christ is growing more. And uh, I, I just think that it's it's not a sin. It's not you know even a fault necessarily, but mass facing the people emphasizes the person of the priest, not the person of Christ. I was actually thinking, Father, it's it's sort of like the reversal of till we have faces. You know, that if if the priest is facing you, particularly the elevation and things like that, it's very difficult to see this particular person who you probably know as being in persona Christi, right? Because, you know, he's elevating the host right in front of his face. So it's very difficult to sort of separate the two. Where if he has his back to you and he's elevating the host, it's very easy. That the impersona Christi thing is much easier to, to unite yourself with if you're not seeing the face of the human priest that you know. Yeah, and I I'm very aware of this. In fact, if, you know, it was first ordained, nineteen seventy-two. We are in mass facing people and so on. And uh I just intuitively felt there's something wrong here. You know, I, I I don't want to be looking at you. You look at me. We want to be looking at the Lord. And I was just a thought that through my mind, but I went, I, I celebrated 10,000 masses, I believe, versus popular. And, and quite a few thousand of them with, with folk music as well. But actually Vivian, it was when your boys came to serve my mass at the, at the chapel over at USF, University of San Francisco, that uh, the first thing we did was, well, because they were dressed nicely, but they just had little, you know, their pants on and a shirt and everything. And then uh, uh, somehow we thought, well, let's add some chant. We added a we added the curie, and then the sanctus. And all of a sudden, it occurred to us that wait a minute, there's we need more formality. So we had the boy. We get little cassocks, you know, and little surplices to Stephen and Thomas. I still have a great picture of me and Thomas there in the in my in my room there, and then. You know, once we did that, we said, well, you know, this chapel is a little too comfortable. You know, you can have a rug on it and these chairs, like a hotel lobby. And that's when we went across the street to the Carmelites because we realized there was something more here that we were missing by the informality that had come in after the council and with the new mass. Now, actually, I hadn't thought about it as well, Father, because I've not been a priest ever. But, of course, it's at least the same uh, for the priest. Now, you have to turn away from the 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 the, the, um, uh, the sacrifice of the mass face towards the people right now you have an audience in front of you you know even if you don't want to see it as such you know so it's going to be very difficult for the priest to if you like look, keep himself lost you know out of things and he's turning and looking at this host the sea of faces in front of him um you know so yeah, I hadn't seen it that way round. I hadn't orientated myself from the perspective of the priest because I've never been a priest. But I can see that you turn round and here you are now confronted with this host, right, of, of a different sort. Yes, and I, I'm very conscious of that. I realize that as a priest, I'm there not for myself. 
I'm there for the community, you know, and to praise the Lord with them to get with them together. But I, as soon as I began celebrating Mass at Orientum, I could pray while I celebrated Mass. I mean, I, I don't want people looking at me while I pray, you know what I mean? But now uh, they can't see me praying. I'm, I'm praying, and they're praying. I can't see them. So it's, it's much more intimate in a certain sense mm -hmm. to do it that way. By the oh, way, yeah. I, I want to uh, I always want to absolve myself and excuse myself and exculpate myself for various things. I mean, I'm half Italian and a quarter French, so I tend to be emotional about things, I suppose. Uh, and I get emotional about, and I begin to speak louder and so on about liturgical things. But so part of the, the exculpation is I'm, I'm a Mediterranean type. But the second part is, there's very few times when Jesus got angry in the Gospels. One of them was in the temple when it was became secularized, when he had the money changers there, you know, and the doves. There. And what did, what did meek and mild Jesus do? He picked up these cords and get that picture in your mind, you know. The temple is a huge place. He's driving them out. Why? My father's house is a house of prayer. Amen. Amen. Okay. So let's see. Middle of that page, 80. 94 in your your books the turning of the priest toward the people has turned the community into a self-enclosed circle in its outward form no longer opens out on what lies ahead and above but is closed in on itself i mean you know one thing i like about him is he you know what he you know you know what he means when he's when he's writing he's, he's very clear you know, this is related also, Joseph mentioned the clericalization element. Well, there's also been a clericalization of laity who now have been brought in to fulfill all of these roles in the Mass. And so now you do have the sense of not only the priests being a performer, but also these other people, what do they do? You know, they end up becoming like a performance troupe. And then... Talk about closed circles. So now you have kind of like this inner circle that's closed. And then this outer circle, those of us who are the spectators. I mean, it's just all wrong, <laughs> no matter how you. Uh, and it all happened when that priest turned around. Uh, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not opposed to lay people taking a, more, you know, a role in the liturgy more than they had in the past. But to think that that's a more active, a more intimate association with the mass, that is false. I think about the mother who can't be a lector. She's got to feed the kids you know, at home, take them to mass. One of them's crying. She's in the crying room. Is she not participating? Is she somewhat second class because she's not a greeter, you know, or Eucharistic minister of some kind? You know, uh, no, that's, that, that, that's completely false. You know, uh, I knew this chapter was going to take some time. Why don't we... Uh, Conclude it here and take it up next week or next session. Uh, and that will give people something to uh, wait for and uh, be interested in. Is that good? Sounds That's good. good. We're, we're gonna, we'll, we'll come back next week uh, with uh, the rest of this chapter. Thanks. God bless you all. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.